Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesise what I've learnt along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. Today, I'm talking to Daniel Havercroft, who's a partner at Oakley Advisory. They work in the technology space. They're based in London mostly in Europe. They advise companies who are looking to sell and they advise companies who are looking to buy and they get involved in in a number of transactions. But they're very niche and so therefore they're very knowledgeable. And in the, I guess in this narrow world of tech that I've spent most of my working life in, I've always found Daniel to be incredibly knowledgeable about the things that will drive valuation. And being able to look at a business from the eyes of the potential purchaser rather than from the eyes of the people running the business. And so we get into a conversation about some of the things that business owners might need to change if they're gonna looking to do an exit in the next two years. We talk about what might drive that evaluation multiple and how to make sure you don't lose out on getting the most, as an entrepreneur, getting the most out of what is effectively the sale of your life's work. So a fantastic conversation with Daniel. I'm sure you're gonna enjoy it. My name is Daniel Havercroft. I'm a partner at Oakley Advisory. Oakley is a specialist corporate finance advisor focused on technology, digital media and telecom sectors. We provide a range of advisory services, but principally M&A, so helping people buy and sell businesses, and equity capital markets advice, um, which is essentially advice to listed companies on how to communicate with investors and grow their shareholder base. We work with companies of all sizes, from entrepreneur-backed businesses worth less than 20 million to advising on multi-billion pound transactions such as the sale of Telecity to Equinix a few years ago now. I've worked for Oakley for over 10 years and the business was founded around 12 years ago. Since this time we've done around 140 transactions, that makes us one of the most prolific advisors in our sectors. This level of deal volume provides us with a a deep understanding of the sectors we cover and insight into what buyers are looking for and what drives valuation. We're based in London. Um, We have around 20 deal professionals, all of uh, whom are are sector specialists. Around 60 to 70% of our revenues come from advising UK-based businesses uh, with the remainder from European companies with a real focus on Germany and the Netherlands driven by the density of opportunity in Germany and the Netherlands, so the sort of depth of the digital businesses in those countries? That's definitely right, but I think there's also another element to it, which is um, I think they really do respect the financial services uh, industry in in the UK. Uh, I think they see sector specialism as being something that's very, very valuable. 
and uh, they're prepared to work with a, a UK-based advisor. We, we don't have an on-the-ground presence in either the Netherlands or Germany. We serve those markets from London. And uh, they're the nations that are happiest to pick up the phone, talk to us, meet us, and so on. So uh, we're kind of driven, I guess, by the attitude that those parties have to working with the UK advisor. Do you think that'll change given our place in Europe or driven by your expertise and not the country's position in Europe? It's a good question. I, I don't think it will change greatly, actually. The, the main benefit we have being a UK advisor is we do see a lot of transactions in the UK market, um, more within certain subsectors than, say, a local advisor in the Netherlands would see. The Netherlands is a relatively small market by comparison. Even in Germany, you know, the private market for transactions is not nearly as prevalent as it is in the UK. There are fewer deals. And so local advisors see less deals within the TMT space than we would see, for example. Uh, what that means is when we sit down and talk to a company in, say, the Netherlands, and, and we say we're a sector specialist advisor, we really do understand your business, they get that sense straight away. We can talk to them about challenges in their business. We can talk to them about examples of businesses we know that have um, navigated those challenges, have done really well, come out the other end. We, we can tell them about the success stories, businesses that we've worked with, um, how we managed to sell them, and so on. And it's really difficult for an advisor in the Netherlands or, or in Germany who've done far fewer transactions to speak with the level of domain expertise that we can. Well, and it's it's the sort of depth in the specialization. And, and for the 140 transactions you've done, you must have spoken to five times more than that in depth. Indeed, yeah. I mean, the, the 140 transactions, yeah, a large proportion of them are sell sites. We do help people try and buy businesses in auction processes. It's not the majority of what we do by any means. But that means that we're, we're obviously working in any one year on quite a number more transactions than we necessarily complete. You know, we get out, outbid by you know, another party in a process. It doesn't stop us learning. It doesn't stop us understanding the dynamics of the business that is up for sale. It doesn't stop us understanding the reasons why it fetched the valuation it fetched, the reason why it attracted the interest from, you know, X, Y, Z buyers. So you get a great deal of insight through working on so many transactions. And as you say, the 140 plus transactions that we've done, you know, is, I, I don't know, we're, we're probably looking at twice as many deals or working on twice as many deals in, in, in any one year when you add up the buy signs. And so that insight that you have into what people might pay, that sort of buyer universe that you work with because of the, the niche that you're in. At what point in a entrepreneur sell cycle should they be speaking to you? Is it should they be talking to you five years before, two years before? What what makes the most sense? I think we typically find that us being appointed 18 months, two years before somebody's looking to sell works best for several reasons really. I mean it, it's enough time for them to start monitoring new KPIs within their business, which we know the buyer audience will expect to see. So it's enough time to actually do some stuff. But it's also enough time, once you're actually monitoring new KPIs, actually to take advantage of, of, of some of the trends that you're seeing from those KPIs, put things right in your business, clean up certain issues that you might have in your business as well. All companies have issues that need to be resolved prior to sell, irrespective of how well they're managed, there are some things that we all put off 
you know, until tomorrow. And I think when you're selling a business, you, you, a lot of those things need to be addressed. And what types of KPIs, for example, does the buyer audience look at in a way that might be different to the way in which the business is being run today? Sure. I mean, there's a, a number of things. I mean, uh, you could uh, look at the nature of revenues, so not just the division that they're coming from. So is it a recurring revenue stream? Is it a repeating revenue stream? You know, is it a non-recurring revenue stream? But but actually having that insight into the exact nature of that revenue base. And that's something that some companies do, of course. But a lot of companies will actually say, well, you know, when we look at our business, we generate X amount from these managed hosting contracts, as an example, X amount from consultancy and X amount. Now, the consultancy piece, of course, might be something that they're generating revenue from a particular client from each and every month over X period. It becomes a repeating revenue at that point and something that somebody is prepared to pay a high valuation for. So it really does make sense to start sort of monitoring some of these attributes, if you like, of your revenue base. Another obvious thing is churn. And, um, you know, most companies monitor churn to a level, if you like, a high level, typically. What they're not doing sometimes is actually trying to understand the nature of the churn. And um, I think buyers can get a great deal of comfort from understanding as a, for instance, that there's an element of your churn, which is stuff that you can't do a great deal about, involuntary type churn. So it might be businesses that have gone bankrupt on you there was nothing that you could really do you couldn't have foreseen that as a you know a likely outcome if you like it wasn't that they were dissatisfied with your service it was that they had issues in their own business it might be that some of your customer base was churning for a very specific reason that might then become an issue during the due diligence process that a buyer will undertake so having insight into that long before you actually launch the sale process is, is really useful. So going back to the managed hosting example, I guess if you're losing one out of every two customers to the public cloud, you better have a really good explanation as to how you're going to address public cloud as a service provider rather than just putting your head in the sand and losing all of these customers to it. So KPIs around those types of things um, often add most value. But of course, there's so many different types of KPIs for different types of businesses. So if you were in the digital sphere, you'd maybe want the client to do a lot more work around marketing effectiveness, you know, having some detailed unit economics available so that a buyer is able to understand for every pound you spend on marketing, you know, you're generating this level of new business and understanding that the whole, whole KPI chain involved in that is really important. And so it feels to me that it's you're helping people focus in on the, given their likely purchaser, your experience of the questions that that purchaser or purchaser class is going to ask. And the level of detail is way more than I often see executive teams running their business on. And also the sophistication. Do you advise people to bring in help to dig down on that, you know, in the way that maybe a purchaser would with due diligence, or does that tend not to come up? Yeah, it certainly happens. Yes. I mean, it depends on the company and uh, it depends on, I guess, the resource base that the company has themselves. Quite often you see companies wanting to do these things internally. And the reason they want to do that is because I, I think when you when you start to go through all the different things that a buyer expects to see, the management team of that company starts to get quite excited about what they might learn from it. 
And as a consequence, they're quite keen to have, in the first instance, somebody who's doing the number crunching, monitoring this kind of stuff, understanding what does work from a KPI perspective, what doesn't work internally, because they have a bit more control over that process. For others, actually bringing in an outside consultant to help them with this is, is certainly a way forward. It might be that they would hire, I don't know, a PwC or some other sort of strategy consultant to help them identify you know, some of the more minute or more granular KPIs that they should be monitoring and helping them to assess you know, what the right methodology of calculating these KPIs is. I'd say that's mainly the strategy that's employed by larger clients that we would have. I think smaller clients would tend to hire somebody in who will utilize somebody very clever in their business who's able to do the work. And you mentioned management teams. So what what's the impact of the management team on evaluation? The quality, you know, how do you assess the quality? How does a buyer assess the quality? And does a good one mean you get more for the business and does a bad one mean you can sell it for less? What's what's the implication? Sure, yeah. I mean, management is is obviously critical. I mean, management, if nothing else, are delivering all the sales messages. I mean, we could be the best advisor in the world, understand the business better than anyone else. We can write the best uh, information memorandum that goes out to all the buyers. But if management can't tell a cohesive story when they're in front of the buyers, then you will not get the valuation for the business that you expect or hope. So management has a very big impact on, on valuation. Now, of course, there are certain instances where management is seen as a synergy. If there's a trade acquirer and people are slightly less concerned if the management team can't, you know, are not that impressive, are not able to tell the story because they're, they're probably not going to last the course anyway. But by and large, I think a management team who has a very clear strategy can articulate it very clearly, uh, have a, a proven track record of being able to execute it. It's intangible in some respects because it's very difficult sometimes to sort of measure the impact that it might have for a private equity company or an acquirer. But ultimately, somebody is going to get much more comfortable with the business. They're going to believe in the business plan and they're going to pay more money for the business. Okay. And what about the purchaser looking at or measuring what they perceive to be the quality of the team, not necessarily just the quality of the storytelling, but the quality of execution? Yeah, I I think it comes down to a number of things. I mean, I I think they're going to look at the strategy that the company has put together. They're going to try and understand whether or not it all adds up. It all makes sense. Has it been well thought through? You know, are there any holes in that strategy? So I think that's the first thing that a buyer does. You know, does it all hang together? I think the second thing is, obviously, you can tell how a business has performed historically. You can monitor how effective the team has been in the past. And let's face it, that's always a good guide as to how successful they could be in the future. People do do quite a lot of management due diligence. So they will go and get references on the management team. They'll look at their past employment history. They'll speak to people who've, who've worked with them. They'll ask people in the market who they know who have, I guess, an outside in view as to the strength and depth of the management team. Uh, in some cases, obviously, they're going to start to interview the customer base of the business and they'll get a view as to how effective the management team is through the customer base as well. There's a whole series of different 
tests, if you like, to to understand whether the management team have what it takes. And what do you reckon, if you've got a great team, do they get an increase in multiple? Without a shadow of the doubt, a shadow of doubt, when you're running a process and you've got a really impressive team, it builds excitement and it builds competitive tension and you end up with a higher multiple. I can't think of many examples of deals I've worked on where the quality of the management team hasn't had an impact. I think in perhaps other industries where the deals are slightly more synergy driven, it's probably a bit less important. But uh, yeah, certainly within the sectors I, I follow, quality of team it, it is critical. What else drives valuation? What are the other EBITDA recurring revenue, repeating revenue we talked about? Yeah, absolutely. Growth rate. What are you seeing in, in the sector? Yeah, I, I think with all businesses, it is that visibility of, of revenue and profit that drives value. So if somebody starts each year with X amount of recurring revenue, and in order to achieve their forecast for the end of, of the financial year, they have to add a, a small increment, it's easy to see where the growth is coming from. If you start, you know, 1st of January each year, as our business quite often does as, a, as an advisor, with uh, a relatively small proportion of your overall revenue target underpinned, then clearly it's, it's a lot more difficult to persuade uh, someone that you're going to hit your year, year end targets. So visibility is absolutely critical from a sort of evaluation perspective. Growth, as you say, is important. You know, if you've got a really strong track record of delivering growth year on year, you're forecasting more of the same. It's clearly much more credible that you're going to achieve that if you've managed to do it in the past. So growth track record, important. And, and valuation, if, if you talk about it, the intrinsic value of a business, quite often people refer to discounted cash flow analysis, which I, you know, in simple terms, I guess, is the sum of future cash flows on the business. If you're growing at a very good pace, then clearly the sum of those future cash flows is that much more. So, you know, growth is a, an important driver. But there are some other factors. I mean, scale in and of itself is, is important. Larger businesses tend to have, I guess, a strategic value to trade acquirers in particular, but also to financial buyers of businesses. Lar- large businesses, there, there's quite a number of private equity players who are looking for those you know, 500 million plus EV businesses, and there are not many of those businesses. So scale creates or rather um, goes with scarcity quite often, and scarcity tends to be a big driver of value. There's a whole heap of different things that will drive value in a business, and it can depend somewhat by subsector as well. So there are certain subsectors, I guess, which um, maybe it's something like uh, robotic process automation, which is it's a skill set, very sexy, and it's from a valuation perspective, very well supported by the fact that there are not too many businesses out there that have a capability set. goes back to that scarcity point, I guess. You're able to drive value because people don't have too many businesses out there that they can go out and acquire. 
but there's also an excitement factor involved in it. You know, I think everyone sees the potential in, in the technology. And therefore, you know, when you start to talk about pretty racy growth expectations, people believe it because they understand that it's the future. So it can be down to actually what the business does. And that can that can trump, I guess, some of its historic uh, growth track record. Okay. In terms of any global trends, in terms of PE, Europe, US, interest, transaction volumes, where where do you, what's 2020 look like versus 18 or 19? Good question. Good question. I mean, I think it's something that... <laughs> I'm asking you to play Mystic Meg, I know, but... Yeah, yeah. A lot of people are scratching their head, to be honest with you, Don, because... I think some markets perhaps were a bit softer uh, last year. I think the German market was seen as not being such a vibrant M&A market, certainly in the sectors that we cover last year. And clearly, the economy is not as strong as it has been. I think some people are also commenting that perhaps the German market isn't quite as uh, as healthy from a sort of a volume of transaction perspective this year. The pipeline's not looking quite so good. I think the UK market, there's still a lot going on. I think the UK market is slightly more mature from an M&A perspective. There's much more going on from a private transaction perspective than, than we see in other continental European markets. We've got a much more developed private equity community, and I think that's certainly helped with transaction volumes. I'd say the, the prospects for the UK market look better post-resolution um, of some election uncertainty. Clearly, we've got to get through Brexit as well. But um, I think people are feeling slightly more confident that um, there'll be a solution when it comes to Brexit and that uh, maybe it's a two-stage solution. But um, I think people are are starting to feel that the economy is not going to uh, take a massive dive. And as a consequence, I think um, people are looking at making investments, buying businesses in this country, particularly, you know, I think overseas acquirers. I think the guys in the U.S. who have their own challenges for the next uh, year, you know, particularly with a a U.S. election, etc., perhaps see the U.K. as being a, a much less risky prospect than it's been in the last 24 months where everyone's been waiting for the, the knife to fall on Brexit. So I think the UK could be quite a hotspot for M&A this year. I think it could be quite well supported. I think the US, you know, again, there's such a waste of money in the US uh, looking for private uh, investment opportunities that uh, I think that will be a, a strong market still, despite the election uncertainty. But I could really see US businesses looking to pick up uh, UK-based businesses. I think that might be a bit more of a theme this year. I, I mean, don't get me wrong, I don't think it will uh, account for a, a significant proportion of M&A activity in the UK market, but I think you might see a little bit more of that uh, this year than you've seen in previous years. I think other other European markets, I think the Dutch market's been quite strong from an M&A perspective. Again, I think it's got quite a blossoming uh, private equity community, which is helping with that. There's some really good companies, really interesting businesses, a very entrepreneurial market. So, you know, it's a market that uh, we do quite a bit in. I'm actually in the Netherlands at the moment. And there's quite a lot going on over here. So I think that could be quite a bright spot as well uh, during 2020. We mentioned robotic process automation as being one of those sort of niche areas where there's a scarcity of business with talent and growth. What else do you are potential buyers asking if you do you know anyone who does this i guess must be a question that comes your way quite regularly what what do you see as the 2020 hot topics yeah i i mean maybe not such a 
2020 topic. It's been a topic of probably the last three or four years, but I think people are all looking for cybersecurity. I think that is an area where a lot of companies want to acquire, private equity want to acquire. There's relatively few businesses of scale to acquire, frankly. So that's been a hot spot for a long time. And in truth, I think the quality of businesses in that space has been quite mixed. You've had a lot of value-added resellers, rebadgers, um, cybersecurity businesses. In truth, selling a firewall doesn't necessarily make you a cybersecurity business in many people's minds. So I think that that's if, if somebody said to us, I know of a you know a cybersecurity business. It's got good growth. It's a genuine service business. How many buyers do you think you'd have for it? I, I probably have a very, very long list. And I'd have people who, you know, will be clambering over each other to win that auction. And so that would be a business, I mean, that you see that would probably be one and a half, two million EBITDA to get to your sort of bottom end of 20 million EV. Exactly. I mean, I think um, that that kind of size will appeal to a lot of managed services providers who are looking to improve their cyber capabilities. And uh, as I said, I think they'll compete with one another to try and win a business like that. If I'm a business thinking about appointing an advisor, what should I be thinking? How I mean, I know this is your opportunity to sell you, but I know you always have a you never sort of all out sell. But you know, what what are the things that Companies should be thinking when they go and appoint an advisor. What should be on their their list of of things to look out for? As you say, I, I would say this, wouldn't I? But sector specialism is absolutely critical. I mean, we set ourselves up as a sector specialist because, you know, frankly, it's really difficult selling a business that you don't really understand that well. Not only do you not understand the business particularly well, but you can't really understand who who the real buyers are. Not only that, what story, what are the key points that you need to sell to a buyer audience? It is so difficult to sell businesses that you don't truly understand. And that's why we we stick to our knitting. I think if you're appointing an advisor, if, if you're a manufacturing company and you're thinking about appointing an advisor, you should not be picking up the phone to the advisory, as a for instance. We wouldn't have a hope of delivering such a good result as somebody who specializes in, in that particular sector. Beyond sector specialism, I think it does come down to the volume that that particular advisor has in your relevant subsector. Okay. So volume is experience, okay? And if, if you're doing a lot of deals in a particular subsector, you're speaking to those buyers much more frequently than anyone else is. You really understand the underlying dynamics behind the other transactions that have happened because you worked on them or you were very close to being the buyer of that business if you're working on the buy side. That allows you to far more effectively position a business for sale and achieve, obviously, the best valuation for the business. Not only the best valuation, but make sure you get the deal done because you know clearly a risk of choosing the wrong advisor is that try it as hard as they might because they don't have that background knowledge, they don't understand the, the attributes that really count, they actually fail to sell the business full stop. And that happens, of course. So I think that that's important. I, I think obviously there needs to be a personality fit with the advisor. Your advisor might work with you, as I said, you know, for 18 months, two years, 
you know, that's a long time to be stuck with somebody. And if, if you can't get on with them, it's going to be a pretty painful journey. But also, you know, you need to make sure that the person who comes to sell you the vision of that great advisory service is the person who's actually going to be there in front of you when you're working together. And, and you know, I, I don't want to do down some of my competitors, but the most senior person in the room that sells the vision is quite often the person you don't see again. And that I find really tough. I mean, the, the way we work as a business is, you know, the team that pitches is the team that delivers the deal. They'll work with you. There'll be senior level involvement at all stages. And you get the expertise of the person with the gray hair or the no hair in my case. <laughs> I, I'd love to say that we're the only ones that deliver that. Of course, we're not. But you really need to try and make sure that that's what, what you're going to get. And quite often, and, and I think this is evidenced by the fact that the boutique corporate finance advisors have grown so strongly, it is those boutiques that deliver that senior level service rather than the larger investment banks that are operating in multiple jurisdictions, et cetera. They're the advisors who, you know, they might cover the technology space with, with two senior guys and they're, they've got very high revenue targets that they need to achieve. And as a consequence, if they're going to achieve those revenue targets, when they've won a piece of business, they need to push it down to less experienced people and get off and start originating the next deal. Um, so I think the dynamics of those businesses is very different. So going backwards, though, personality fit is a really important point. The other thing is, of course, the, you know, the process that you go through can be quite emotional. You, some people are selling their life's work. And I think you need somebody that not, not only you get on with, but you really trust. And so there needs to be that sense of trust because they're going to be advising you on one of the most important decisions in your life. And you need to get the sense that this is a person who's going to be batting for you. They're going to have your best interests at heart. Now, clearly, as an advisor, you're motivated to get the best possible price for a business through the, the fee that you negotiate with your client. But also, there's a personal element to everything that we do in life. And I think um, finding an advisor that you really do trust to have your best interests at heart is, I appreciate, sometimes it's difficult to know. But um, you need to spend time to make the right decision on that front. Having a big beauty parade with, you know, five advisors pitching up or six advisors pitching up, telling you over a three hour period how wonderful they are, et cetera. That's not going to do it. You're not going to be able to understand whether they're the right people to work with. You know, I, I think in, in the case of our business, we do pitch for, for new mandates. I think if we're invited to pitch and we haven't really spent a great deal of time with a company before, Quite often, we don't expect to win, in truth. And actually, if you do win it, there is that, that sense that you as an advisor are taking a bit of a risk that this is going to work out with the client. But the client is taking a massive risk as well, that there is going to be that vested interest that we have as your advisor to do the best possible job for you. So I think there has to be a much longer courtship, if you like. I think companies who have a view that they might sell their business in two, three years' time, need to get out there and start meeting advisors, you know, accepting those, um, you know, offers of coffees and, and, and actually getting to know the guys far sooner. Don't put it off until the end because you'll end up with the wrong advisor. Yeah, good advice. So there's a thing that you now know. Let me ask you another question. What other thing do you now know, piece of knowledge that if you had a time machine, you'd take back to another point in your life? 
God, there's loads. Tons. <laughs> so the buyers will always lie on the, the downside as to what they pay. They always paid less for businesses than they really did. The sellers do the exact opposite. They always got far more for their business than uh, you ever would have imagined and it actually happened. So that's one of the things, you know, around valuation. I think another thing that I would tell myself is that, again, clients are always negotiating with you as well. And you need to remember that. And I think sometimes you do have to stop the client and you do have to have an earlier conversation on 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 what is likely to happen. I think for an advisor, it's so easy sometimes to tell the client they're right, to tell them all the things that they want to hear. And I think as you as you gain more experience as an advisor, it becomes much easier to say that that's the aspiration. That's what we're working hard towards. But in reality, things might turn out a bit different. I think with experience comes confidence in, in, in having those types of conversations. And uh, I, I only wish in, in, in the past I, I had them earlier. <laughs> it's so easy if you're not careful to set the wrong expectations. And once you've set those wrong expectations, there is always an element of disappointment that follows. So I think that's one, one of the lessons learned. Thankfully, I learned it a long time ago. So I've only got, you know, happy clients over the last nine years or, or whatever it is. And what about uh, books that you have read along the way or business resources that you use? What recommendations do you have for people? There's books that I've read over the years, you know, Jack Welch on how how he managed a huge business, which probably had as many employees as the NHS, which I thought were pretty inspirational and so on. I've moved as I guess you should do in the 21st century, to podcasts, actually. And uh, I listen to a few podcasts, which I find really quite interesting, inspirational in the same way. Um, So there's one called Business Wars that I particularly enjoy, which uh, talks about different different business wars that have taken place through time. So, um, you know, an example will be McDonald's versus Burger King. And uh, you get to hear about the history of... uh, both companies, the business model that they've adopted, how they tried to win over the other player, uh, some of the strategies they employed, what worked, what didn't. I think it's, a, a, a you know, over maybe five or six episodes, you get a huge amount of detail on how some of these brilliant businesses were built, how they were optimized, how they got over some of the challenges. And uh, you can do it with your eyes closed on the train, which I love. <laughs> any others or just or is that that's your favorite I, I think that's my favorite there are a number of others reed hoffman who's you know famous for linkedin i think he had some involvement in in netflix as well uh interviews a lot of um you know silicon valley uh business people and um there's some nuggets from that as well masters of scale that's it masters of scale i have to say i find i find that interesting i mean not always but uh, and it's a slightly different type of program because it's it's actually the people themselves talking about what they felt was important and what wasn't. And actually, sometimes what you need is an external person to tell you these things. Fantastic. Daniel, that's brilliant. I am um, Masters of Scale. I've got on my phone, but Business Wars, I'm going to go and sign up to immediately. Thank you very much indeed for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Well, it's always a pleasure speaking to you, Dom.
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me, share your questions and comments, and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.